Section one of Modern England, eighteen twenty to eighteen eighty five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Pamela Nagami, M.D. Modern England, eighteen twenty to eighteen eighty five by Oscar Browning. Book one, Canning, eighteen twenty to eighteen twenty seven book one chapter one the queen's trial you were told at the end of your last epoch that the reign of george the third closed in a time of sullen agitation the result partly of the usual distress caused by a long war partly of the delay in passing needful measures of reform our epoch therefore opens dark and gloomily we find the ministers so unpopular that a conspiracy is formed to murder them we find the crown discredited by the bad character of the king and the people ready to take part against him the horror of the cato street conspiracy is explained by the scandal of the queen's trial let us hear what this conspiracy was one day toward the end of february eighteen twenty the cabinet ministers were to dine together at lord harrowby's but they had been told that a plot had been formed by some desperate men to murder them as they sat at table. They therefore dined separately at home while the police were sent to capture the conspirators. They found them, twenty-five in number, in a loft above a stable in Cato Street, Edgware Road, armed and ready for the enterprise. The first of the police who entered was stabbed to the heart, and the greater number of culprits escaped, including thistlewood the captain of the gang who however was taken next day on may first he was executed with four others while five more were transported for life terror spread throughout the kingdom nothing it was said could be compared with this atrocity except the gunpowder plot in the reign of james i it was attributed to the radical reformers and the name of radical became a byword it was only the work of a few, yet misery and discontent must have risen to a high pitch before such remedies could have been thought of. George III had become unfit through illness to perform his duties as king at the end of the year 1810. His son George, Prince of Wales, was made regent, and held that office till his father's death in the beginning of 1820, after which he succeeded to the throne the trial of queen caroline wife of the new king tended still more to widen the breach between the people on one side and the king and ministers on the other she was a princess of brunswick and had married the prince of wales in seventeen ninety five from the first he treated her with dislike and she withdrew from england in eighteen fourteen as soon as peace made it possible for her to travel on the continent on the accession of her husband to the throne she was refused the titles and honour of a queen her name was omitted from its place in the prayer-book and she was not received at foreign courts goaded by these insults she came to england to claim her rights she was received with enthusiasm by the people crowds of supporters thronged her house and attended her carriage the ministers at the bidding of the king introduced a bill to deprive her of her rank and to dissolve her marriage the bill failed and was withdrawn 
and London was illuminated for three nights. Parliament granted her an annuity of fifty thousand pounds, but no place was provided for her at the coronation of the king. On the morning of that day, she attempted to force her way into Westminster Abbey, but was repulsed and died a few days afterwards. Book One, Chapter Two Foreign Policy. We must now consider the position of England in connection with the other nations of Europe. After the defeat of Napoleon, the Allied sovereigns who met at the Congress of Vienna attempted to do away with all traces of his work. The emperors of Russia and Austria, the kings of Prussia, France, and Spain, indeed, nearly all the European powers except England, formed what was called the Holy Alliance. The object which it put forward was that of promoting peace and goodwill among nations upon the basis of Christianity. But its real effect was to crush attempts to establish self-government throughout Europe. Napoleon had driven out the Bourbon kings from Spain and Naples. He had destroyed the Holy Roman Empire and weakened the papacy. He had been the enemy of all the old governments which were hostile to progress, the efforts of European statesmen were devoted to undoing all that he had done. During the six years which succeeded his fall, Europe was disturbed by conspiracies and plots. These were mainly caused by the measures taken by governments to repress their subjects in their aspirations for freedom. Lord Londonderry, better known as Lord Castlereagh, who managed foreign affairs in England, had shown himself too favourable to the policy which Prince Metternich, the Prime Minister of Austria, had done most to form. In August 1822, however, Castlereagh died by his own hand, and Canning, who was just preparing to sail as Governor-General to India, became Foreign Secretary in his place. Insurrection had broken out in Spain. The Liberals set up a new constitution and secured the person of the King. The partisans of absolute government and the Catholic religion marched into Catalonia under the name of the Army of Faith. The French troops, under the plea of protecting their country against a contagion of fever, occupied the passes of the Pyrenees. They, however, soon crossed the frontier and, uniting with the absolutists, succeeded in quelling the rebellion. A similar outbreak had occurred a short time before in Naples and in Piedmont. Part of the same wave of feeling had caused the Greeks to throw off the Turkish yoke. This attempt met with much sympathy in Europe, for when men thought of what the old Greeks had done for freedom, they wished that their descendants might succeed in gaining it. England could not give open help, but her feelings were shown without concealment to be on the side of the struggling power. The poet Shelley wrote, and the poet Byron died for the awakened freedom of the land to which poetry owes so much. The Greeks fought well and bravely against the Turks, who could not put down their rising foe. A Congress of European Powers was summoned to meet at Verona in the north of Italy in 1822, apparently for the purpose of discussing the affairs of Greece. It was attended by the Duke of Wellington as representative of England. As soon as it was suggested by the other powers, 
that a general interference should be made to crush the rising in Spain, he refused to take any further part in the matter and retired from the conference. Canning recognized the independence of the colonies in South America, which had revolted from Spain. He called, as he said, a new world into existence, to redress the balance of the old. At a later period, he sent troops to protect the liberties of Portugal against France. In this manner, England showed that she had definitely broken with the principles of the Holy Alliance. Book One, Chapter Three, Commercial Reform. The conclusion of the war against Napoleon had left England in great distress. She had borne the expense not only of her own armament, but of the armament of foreign nations. The national debt amounted to nearly eight hundred millions, and the money required for the struggle in which the nation was engaged had been borrowed most wastefully. In 1823, Huskisson became president of the Board of Trade. He was, like Canning, sneered at for being an adventurer. In other words, he did not belong to one of those families who were considered at that time to have the right to keep the government entirely in their own hands. He was thoroughly versed in the principles of political economy, that is, in knowledge of the laws under which wealth is produced and distributed, and he used his position to pass a number of measures which rapidly developed the resources of the realm. A law had been enacted during the time of the Commonwealth, which was ratified by Charles II, forbidding with some exceptions that foreign produce should be brought into England by any but English ships. The effect of this had been to give to England the carrying trade of Europe, and to take it away from the Dutch, that is, to enrich English merchants with all the profits of carrying foreign goods. Other nations had objected to this, and America, in particular, placed so high a duty on goods imported in English vessels that it practically prevented the trade from continuing. English ships used to go empty to America to fetch American goods, and American ships, after bringing their own goods to us, went away empty themselves. The price of freight was thus doubled on both sides. To remedy this evil, Huskisson proposed and carried in 1823 a reciprocity of duties bill, by which duties were made equal on all goods, whether brought in English or foreign vessels. Our shipping trade, which had been much depressed, was thus very much increased. There were also large duties levied on the importation of foreign silk. This did great injury to our silk weavers, partly by depriving them of the materials of their labor, partly by removing the stimulus of healthy competition. French silks were everywhere preferred to English, and so great was the rage for smuggled goods that it even paid an English manufacturer to have his own goods smuggled into England under the name of French. The prohibition of foreign wool was equally injurious. Much English wool could only be used when mixed with foreign. All change was resisted, both by manufacturers and operatives. But Huskisson was assured of the truth of his principles, and carried measures which reduced the duties on both these articles. The question of the abolition of slavery was still unsettled. 
like many other reforms it had been brought forward and encouraged by wilberforce and pitt but had been laid aside in the throes of the european struggle our west indian colonies were full of slaves and scenes were enacted in them as terrible as any we have since heard of in america yet slavery could not be abolished without heavy loss of money indeed it was feared that the blacks might rise and bring about a general massacre a bill was passed to mitigate the sufferings of the slaves and all slaveholders knew that by this small measure the death-blow of slavery had been struck under the influence of these measures the prosperity of the country largely increased wealth began to flow into new channels and all classes of the people felt in their daily lives how far preferable peace was to war only the change was too sudden the country ran into wild speculation companies were formed for objects impossible to obtain banks were opened by men who had no capital to support them a crash came in eighteen twenty five riots broke out in the midland counties machines were broken as the supposed cause of the people's misery the government came to the rescue money was lent to merchants to retrieve their fortunes foreign corn was let out of the docks and the panic passed away book one chapter four the death of canning two great questions remained for settlement the corn laws and the catholic disabilities the catholic population of ireland was four times as great as the protestant the catholics had for more than a century and a half been treated as a conquered and downtrodden race in many respects their position had been improved yet even in eighteen twenty eight no catholic could sit in either house of parliament no catholic could be guardian to a protestant or keep any arms or warlike stores the catholics were excluded from almost every office of trust or distinction and were made in many ways to feel that they stood on a different social footing to the protestants in eighteen hundred when ireland was united with england pitt had promised to remedy their grievances but the king pleaded his coronation oath and his mind gave way when the question was pressed upon him it was felt that nothing could be done as long as george the third lived canning had devoted himself to this cause from his earliest years but the matter remained an open question with the ministry and it would probably have remained so much longer had it not been for the efforts of the catholic association under daniel o'connell a relief bill passed the house of commons in eighteen twenty five but was defeated in the house of lords by the efforts of the duke of york the next heir to the throne who declared his unflinching hostility to any measure of this kind so long as he lived he did not live long but died in january eighteen twenty seven lord liverpool was soon afterwards struck down by paralysis and canning was reluctantly summoned by the sovereign to form a ministry he had already received his death-blow in attending the duke of york's funeral on a cold winter's night in st george's chapel the duke of wellington peel and lord eldon declined to serve under him his principal colleague was huskisson his ministry was pledged to remove the two crying evils of the time a corn bill intended to redeem part of this pledge was rejected in the house of lords 
Canning had no time to put into execution the cherished purpose of his life. Worn out by the exertions of his office, disheartened by the desertion of his friends, harassed by the constant persecution of an unscrupulous opposition like that which had embittered the last days of Pitt, he sank under his accumulated burdens and died in August 1827 at the age of 57. He has left a name second to none on the roll of English statesmen. His policy was not bounded by the limits of his country. His heart was ever moved with indignation against oppression. He vindicated the position of England as the asserter of liberty and freedom throughout the world. End of section one.